You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. It is, uh, it's good to be in worship with you today. Uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, as Pastor James just read uh, the passage that I'm going to be preaching on. And so if you've got a Bible, uh, open it up, turn it on, whatever, uh, whatever uh, floats your boat there. Um, and we're going to be in Mark 14. If you have a, um, a Bible, like a real Bible, you know, like one of those paper Bibles that you flip pages in, um, that's got the Old Testament, we're going to be reading in the book of Zechariah a lot today, too. So... Um, you can go ahead and begin to try to figure out where in the world Zechariah is. It's toward the end of the Old Testament, and um, if you want to mark that a little bit, uh, we'll, be, we'll be referencing that. That's the, the book that, or the prophet that Jesus is quoting from as he speaks to the disciples here. Um, verse 26, the first verse of our passage today, says, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so just to remind you of the setting, we're preaching through the Gospel of Mark. We love to go verse by verse through the books of the Bible. And so what's happening is they had, we're picking up where we left off last week in verse 25. Um, and they had just observed the feast of Passover, which I'll get into a little bit of the Jewish tradition around Passover. That's been a theme the past several weeks at our church as we look at that. But Jesus has taken that theme, um, that tradition that, that is given by God in the Old Testament, and he's put um, a gospel spin on it that has reference to his death, burial, and resurrection, um, something we uh, partake in every Sunday that we know as communion. And in communion, what we, what we do is we're echoing what happens on the night that we're looking at right now in Mark 14, that Jesus gathers for the feast of Passover with his disciples, and he institutes what's known as the Lord's Supper, what we call communion, in a tradition that is carried on from the apostles to now and will carry on until Jesus comes back. Um, we're part of this ancient tradition. And after this uh, communion that they have, it says in verse 26 that they sing a hymn together. Um, in, in Greek, it's hymneo, uh, but the root word is hymn. It's, it's, so hymn, when we say that we sing hymns, um, we, are, we are using a Greek word to describe what we're singing. Um, hymn, at, at its root, basically just means a, a song of praise. In, in the Hebrew language, they would have called it a Hallel. Um, hallel means praise, which uh, Sam just led you guys singing, uh, we sing hallelujah. I know we, we sing that word a lot, but we don't always know what it means. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We, you know, we've heard Whoopi Goldberg say it you know, on Sister Act and all that, but sometimes we don't really know what we're talking about. Hallelujah is a Hebrew word. Um, it means praise the Lord. Hallel meaning praise and Yah meaning Yahweh. And so it means to praise the Lord. So next time you shout or sing hallelujah, um, now you know what you're hollering a little bit. Okay, But um, the Jews would sing from these Hallel songs or, or what in Greek they knew as hymns. And they were, they were the Psalms from Psalm 113 to 118 and Psalm 136. These were the Psalms that in particular brought praise to God. Not that all of them didn't praise the Lord, but there are a lot of Psalms that are imprecatory Psalms or Psalms of hope um, in, in times of despair or worry. These are Psalms that are Psalms of praise. Uh, matter of fact, the Jews referred to this section of the Psalms as the great Hillel or the great praise. And so uh, if you want to jot those down, I think that'd be a great devotion for you this week just to pray through those, read those. Psalm 113 through 118 and also 136. For the sake of time, we're not going to look at those, but I think when you look at them, you'll see why they sang those at the end of the Passover feast, you know, because they were bringing praise to God. And so they sing this song together, one of these psalms, and then it says they go out to the Mount of Olives. Now that kind of gives us the setting of what's happening and what's getting ready to happen and what Jesus is going to predict in this passage 
um, that's very important. And as I looked at the passage this week and as I studied it and prayed for you all and prayed for myself and prayed for how as a church we would walk through this passage, what, what continually came into mind were, were actually lyrics from an old hymn, an old praise song uh, called Come Thou Fount. Um, Come Thou Fount, the lyrics of that go like this, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. And as I read about the apostles um, fleeing and scattering from the mission that Jesus had put them on, I thought, man, that, that hymn is so true as it describes us. The hymn continues, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it for thy courts above. And, and, and so as we sing that, I, I just wanted to walk us through, and I want you to see how that lines up and, and how that's rooted in Scripture, because it lines up with what we see. And so the sermon points today are coming from that. Number one, we are prone to wander. Uh, secondly, we'll look at that Jesus will seal us, that Jesus is greater than our wandering. Amen? Praise God for that. And then thirdly, we'll see that we are called to just give our hearts to him, and, um, and then he leads us in the rest. So let's look at the first point today, prone to wander. Um, like, this, this is descriptive of the disciples as well as you. Uh, we wander off into things that, that are of little or no value to us. We wander into our own musings and hobbies and interests that are uh, antithetical to what God has called us to. Uh, we are described in the Bible like sheep that wander off and like children that wander off. Like How many of y'all know kids wander off, right? Um, in the first service, there was a little girl that was walking around and she was laughing at me because uh, you know, evidently I'm goofy looking. She was laughing at me and just kind of wandering around, looking at stuff, grabbing stuff, and um, and she was the cutest little girl, but I'm like, she, she has no uh, sense of where she's going right now. She's just wandering, right? And many of us in our spiritual journeys, we get like that. We get like these little children. Like my kids, they will wander. Some of my kids will go and end up in somebody else's home if we don't watch them, right? They'll just go get in somebody else's car, go home, they'll wake up the next morning and be like, this bed feels different. Like something's not right here. And, and we will do the same thing. We'll be deceived by the world or by Satan or by our own flesh. And we'll kind of wander off into things that God says, you have no business dabbling in those things. And we'll wander into them because because we're just not paying attention to what Jesus tells us to. And Jesus here tells his disciples, he warns them of this wandering, and he actually says that they're not just going to kind of slowly wander. He says that they're going to scatter. In verse 27, Jesus says to them, you will all fall away. You will all fall away. Now, now he had just told them that Judas was, he didn't name him, but he said that one of his disciples was going to betray him, and and. Then they come out and they're like, okay, well, one of us is a traitor, but the rest of us, we, we got this. We're dialed in. And he says that all of you, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Um, it's, it, Jesus is kind of comparing it to when you walk into a, a, a dark room and you flip the light switch on and the roaches that are, that are in there kind of scatter. Y'all have that happen ever? Um, when I worked for West Virginia Tractor Company for my dad, um, I had a printer at work that had a mouse that lived in it. And I was cool with the mouse living in there, but when I would print something and that ribbon would be like, and start going, the mouse would, would just flee, you know, immediately run out of there. And it was always funny because I could just like wait for him to jet out of there. Um, and jet, that was a pun also because it's a printer. Um, some, some of my preachings over y'all's head. I, um, but Jesus is saying, 
he, he's not comparing mice or roaches. He's, he's saying sheep. And he's, he's quoting from the prophet Zechariah. That's why we're going to go to Zechariah a little bit. Now, Zechariah was an Old Testament prophet. Um, he prophesied. He was in the office of prophet in the nation of Israel in the post-exilic period. What that means is that after the people of Israel were carried away into bondage and exile um, and then returned back, rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem, this is like Nehemiah, Ezra's time, then all that gets reestablished, the temple's rebuilt, that sort of thing. Um, then you have what's, what's commonly known as the minor prophets. And these minor prophets come right before the end of the Old Testament because they prophesy up until um, there is a 400-year intertestamental silence. Uh, there's about 400 years in between the Old and New Testament where God doesn't send any prophets to Israel. He kind of silences them because of their disobedience. And this is, of course, right before John the Baptist comes and before Jesus is born. Um, and so that kind of gives you a sense of where Zechariah is. So he's kind of like at the tail end of the Old Testament telling Israel that there is a Savior coming for them. And actually, Jesus, in, in the Passover week, where we find ourselves reading this week, had already fulfilled some of the prophecies of Zechariah. Uh, in particular, Zechariah 9.9. If you want to look at that with me, it'll be on the screen, or you can turn there. Uh, in Zechariah 9.9, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, as he humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. If you remember, we preached about the triumphal entry and how Jesus actually fulfilled this prediction of Zechariah as he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, which would have been an unusual thing. Now, after the Last Supper, Jesus quotes another verse in Zechariah, namely chapter 13, verse 7. I want you to look at this verse, and I want you to pay attention to what it says closely because I think there's some, some good principles and some deep theology rooted in this one verse in Zechariah. Chapter 13, verse 7 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd. This is what Jesus quotes. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now, I believe this Old Testament uh, verse is a Trinitarian verse. I want you to look at it. Um, if you can, put it back on the screen for me so we can just kind of look at that. It begins with, Awake, O sword, but it's a quote from the Lord of hosts. It says, declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is a reference to God the Father. And he says that he is going to strike down with the sword, uh, with the, sword uh, the man who stands next to me. And in his next statement, he refers to him as a shepherd. Um, I believe this is a reference to Jesus. I think Jesus is making it clear um, to his disciples that this verse is about him. And so uh, you have the Father claiming that he's going to strike down the Son, Jesus, who is the shepherd and the one who stands next to him. We, we often in the New Testament see Jesus as seated at the right hand of the Father. The deacon Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7, before he is martyred and murdered um, and stoned, he looks up into heaven and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And then the third uh, person of the Trinity, the Spirit, I think is mentioned in Zechariah 13, 7 at the beginning. It says, awake, O sword. And it doesn't say spirit, I realize that, but the sword is an instrument that is, um, that is personified in Zechariah and I think used to describe the Spirit of God. Um, for example, in Ephesians 6, when we're given the armor of God, uh, we're told that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And so in Ephesians 6, when Paul tells the, the Christians in Ephesus to put on all of this spiritual armor, he says to take the sword 
and he tells us what the sword is. It's the Word of God or the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back, um, it's described as he's going to, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. The point of this is that the sword was often descriptive of the Holy Spirit of God. Even in the Old Testament, um, where wrath would go throughout a land, it was described as God's Spirit going and carrying out the task. One name, namely, uh, what, what, what is a big event that's referred to in this is the Passover. We find that in Exodus 12. Um, God gives these instructions. He says, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. This is the Passover when they're in Egypt. Verse 23 says, For the Lord will pass through to strike, there's that sword language, to strike the Egyptians when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the doorpost. The Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. There's that sword language again. So much so that the Jews understood Zechariah's prophecy to be the Spirit of God, that they actually, um, in tradition, they actually continually referred to God's Spirit, even after the Passover, as being present and, and that sword of God being present outside of their homes when they observed the feast. Um, and what's interesting is that they continued to carry out that tradition that we see in Exodus 12. That after they ate the Passover feast, they were not to leave their homes. It was like sleepover time. Like, get in your jammies, we're going to hang out, we're not leaving the house because um, the Bible says you stay in your home. Now that was for the Egyptians, but nevertheless, or, or the, the Jews in Egypt, but nevertheless they kept that tradition now, what's interesting is, what did Jesus and the disciples do after they ate the Passover? They left. They left that upper room. They went outside. They went for a walk. They took a walk to the Mount of Olives. It's, you know, there's, there's some times that it's just good to stay inside. If there's a hurricane outside, it's probably best to just you know, stay inside. Um, but the Jews would have looked at this as something that violated tradition for sure, and many of them would have looked at it as violating the Word of God itself. But I think there's something in principle going on here that I think is very important for us in 2021 to understand is that Jesus walked out of the upper room because he was walking into the wrath of the Father. He willfully walked out of comfort and walked into torture and pain for us. This is an important principle for us to grasp. And so as he goes on this walk with the disciples, they're walking out into the night. The streets are deserted, right? Everyone's observing the word of God, and they're staying in their homes. And he tells them that he's going to be arrested. He's going to be betrayed. He, he, he prophesies that one of them is going to betray him. He's going to be arrested. He's going to die, and he's going to raise from the dead. And he says, all y'all are going to leave me. You're all going to flee from me. You're prone to wonder. And I read this, and I'm like, Jesus, man, what a, what a buzzkill, right? Like, why, why would Jesus do this? They had such a sweet spirit of fellowship going on in the upper room. Like, Judas leaves, and then they're, they're sharing a common cup together. They're having a good time together, and they go out, and Jesus is like, all y'all are going to desert me. Like, what a Debbie Downer here. Why would he do this? Well, I think he's teaching them something very important, that they have to understand and realize their own weakness. And you do, too. You have to understand that in your flesh, you are prone to wander away from God's will. That you are, you are prone to walk away from all the good things that he set before you. And, and when you rationalize it and look at it, you understand and you can convince yourself that Jesus has good things for me as a child of God, but yet in my flesh, I want to walk away from it. And as the proverb says, like a dog returns to his vomit, I just want to go back into that madness. So 
Christian, listen to me. Here's the application for you. You need to be careful lest you think you're better than the disciples. Because you'll be like, I would never just run away from Jesus like they did. I would never abandon uh, the mission like they did. Will you be careful? Because your flesh can fool you. And guess what? The Bible that was true about the disciples is the Bible that's true about you today too. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So we're prone to wonder, but here's the solution, that Jesus seals us. Amen? He seals us. Ephesians 1 tells us that the Holy Spirit seals us until the day of redemption. And so point two is that Jesus will seal us. He will take care of what we fail at. This is the gospel. This is the hope that we have as Christians is that though we fall time after time after time, we will ultimately succeed, not because we've got it all together, but because Jesus has it all together for us on our behalf. You see, this passage is ultimately about the failure of the disciples. But we should be careful not to miss the hope in the midst of this passage. See, the disciples were not called into the kingdom because of their charisma. The disciples were not called into the kingdom because they were really bold and brave. The disciples were not called into the kingdom because they could preach good sermons and they had it all together. They were simple fishermen, and we see in a very real way after Jesus is arrested, they were cowards. I think this proves Christianity. It was founded by totally incompetent people. There's no other way it would have been successful other than Jesus. And thankfully, Jesus is a friend of sinners and screw-ups like the disciples. He's a friend of failures like you and like me. But with Christ on our side, our failures are never final. Amen? That, that's good news, Christian, that, that when, when Jesus is with us, we fail time and time again. And just like, just like a little kid going along the way, screwing everything up, we have, we have like a father behind us just fixing everything behind us. It's good news that even though we mess up and mess up and mess up, that's not the final end of the story because Christ is victorious. And in the same breath of foretelling their desertion of him and their failure to remain true, he also tells of their reuniting with him. This is what we can't miss, verse 28. I actually think it's kind of the, the, the climax of the passage. I think it's the main point that we don't want to miss. In verse 28, Jesus says, but after I am raised up. So first of all, there's certainty in the resurrection. That's good news, right? And then there's certainty that they're going to meet back up. He says, I will go before you to Galilee. He's telling them the meeting place that they need to get together after he raises from the dead. So we see the promise of resurrection. It's reassuring to know that Christ um, knew the resurrection. It was in God's plan. It wasn't a surprise to him. Like Jesus didn't like wake up on the third day with a hangover. Like what just happened? Like, like he knew, he knew what was coming. He knew he was going to die on the cross and he was going to raise from the dead. It was all in God's plan before the foundations of the world. And so this was a certainty. You know what else was a certainty? The disciples not ultimately leaving the faith. Jesus says, you're going to try to get away from me. You're going, to, you're going to try to run from Jerusalem and run your butts back to Galilee, out to the country where you rednecks came from. And, and he says, when you get there, I'm going to beat you there. <laughs> like they, they try to run away from this whole thing, and Jesus meets them there where they run to. That's a picture of you and me, church. And we try to run away from God's plan, and everywhere we run to, it's like, he's right there. Dang, I'm right back where I started. Maybe I just need to serve Jesus my whole life, right? He takes away those horrible options that we present to ourselves, and he gives us the one good and true option, which is himself. You see, 
The disciples needed to understand their weakness so that they could understand that it's not because of their strength that they get to heaven. You know, when, like when, when I get to the pearly gates, I'm not going to have a resume that I can be like, hey, you know, St. Pete, let me in because I did all these good things, right? Look at all these sermons I preached. Like that one, you know, October 3rd, 2021, that was a good one. Like, and I've built this resume that makes me worthy to get into heaven. If I get into heaven, it's only because of the grace of Jesus. It's only because someone perfect has fulfilled the law, satisfied the wrath of God, imputed his righteousness to a sinner like me, and shown me grace to allow me to be in his presence. That's the only reason. And the disciples needed to learn that because they were going to be the foundational church planting pastors that were going to turn the world upside down. They needed to understand that it was not going to be done by their own strength. And so they needed to flee. So Jesus would teach them something. I've gotten into this bad habit of like moving heavy things with my wife lately. We carried kayaks yesterday out of the little coal river. And, and then we carried a dresser for some reason. I've had her uh, help me put the truck topper on for me. And, and you think we would learn after moving multiple heavy things that like it, it's really a strain on our marriage to move heavy things together. But we keep fooling ourselves over and over like we can do this. We can carry heavy things together. And it always ends in like us being mad at each other and awkward, right? And, and so like we just don't learn. We just don't figure it out. And the disciples needed this like mega failure in their life so that when they went out and preached the gospel into all the world that everyone would know that it was not by their own might. That, that their religion was completely different than every other religion, that we're not, our message as Christians is not you can do better. Our message is he did better. And, and you, you fully lean on him and embrace your own failure and understand how much of a screw up you are. And you lean on the cross for your salvation. And so the disciples hadn't really experienced this weakness being apart from the physical presence of Jesus yet. And they would fail but grace would reunite, reunite them. Zechariah prophesied about grace too. In Zechariah 12.10, he says this, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. Y'all thankful for that? That God poured out when Jesus came a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now this is beautiful because before John 3.16 was ever thought about in John's mind, before he put quill to parchment and wrote that the, the one and only begotten son would die for the world, Zechariah is saying that the only begotten was going to be pierced to pour out grace on people. That before Paul would write to a church that, that he is the firstborn of all creation, Zechariah is prophesying that the firstborn of all creation would be pierced and that God himself speaks to the prophet and he says, they will look on me whom they are pierced. He's, he's pointing out that it is deity on the cross. God is being killed on a cross. And this is, this is the crux of all history. This is the literal center of our entire hope. The firstborn of all creation, the good shepherd, was soon to die, and then the sheep would scatter in fear. And you too have run away in fear. You too have run away in your selfishness. You too have run away in your pride after things that ultimately don't matter. That's Jesus coming back, y'all. It's eight seconds. It's a bull ride. Don't panic, okay? There was a fender bender on 60. But Jesus in his 
in his omniscience is pointing out that the fulfillment of Zechariah 13 is finding its place on that night at the Mount of Olives in their presence. And he is saying, you are sheep who will scatter, who will run, and I am a good shepherd. Let me give you this quote from John Calvin. John Calvin in his commentary on this text says, we are here taught that there is no unity that brings salvation, but that which keeps the sheep united under Christ's crook. The whole point of this text is for you to understand that you are a wandering sheep, that you are an utter failure on your own, and you need a good shepherd. And you are wandering, and there are seasons of your life where you're wandering more than other times, but the good news is, is that you serve a pursuing shepherd who never gives up on you. Jesus taught about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and if he loses one of them, won't he leave the 99 to go find the one? In John 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. You see, Jesus preached about the security of the people he was redeeming on the cross. There's no panic in Jesus' voice when he's like, y'all are all going to fall away from me. You're all going to flee. When the, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep are going to scatter. He's not like, I'll meet you in Galilee if you keep the faith, if you keep it all together. If you read your Bible every day and you pray a lot, I'll see you in Galilee. No, them making it to meet Jesus is always dependent on Jesus. And the same is true of you. You making it to be with Jesus for eternity is ultimately dependent on Jesus, not you. What that does is that doesn't, that doesn't give you a license to sin. It doesn't make you just you know, kick the lazy boy out on your recliner and just chill back and do nothing. It gives you confidence that you can go out and serve in Christ's name, reaching others to tell them of the good news. I'm going to heaven. There's nothing that can change it. That's great. How could I not preach that? How could I not proclaim that with my life? So the disciples are sealed by Christ. They're in a secure relationship with him. They're prone to wonder, but their hearts have been sealed and they can't get away. And the disciples did a lot wrong, but they did one thing right. Point three is here's my heart. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. They did one thing right. They gave their hearts to Jesus. Now they did a whole lot more wrong but that one act of rightness outweighs all of their knuckleheaded things that they did. You see, their actions when Jesus is arrested, you're going to see this. They do not show devotion to Christ upon his arrest. They don't stick around faithfully for the crucifixion. Even at the resurrection, they're doubters. Even though Jesus had preached it to them. But their hearts here, we see kind of their default, that they are full of devotion and maybe a little bit of pride. But nevertheless, they're full of devotion to Jesus. And this is the one thing we can say about the disciples that they had right. Now, Peter, he's kind of the leader in confidence and arrogance of the apostles. And in Mark 14, 29, Peter says to them, even though they all fall away, I will not. He says, even though they all fall away, you know, all these other guys, Jesus, I've, I've got a little bit of questions about the guys that you've picked, but if they all leave you, I won't desert you. Um, at, at breakfast this morning, Pastor Jabes and I were at Seanette's, and um, we, were, we were talking about something important. Um, 
he, he looks across the table at me and he asks me, he says, how big of an alligator would you be willing to wrestle? And um, it's just like, you know those memes that's like where the wife's like, I bet he's cheating and then the guy's doing something silly. This is what guys are doing. We're talking about the size alligator that we'd be willing to wrestle. And, um, and I'm like, well, I wouldn't want it to be bigger than me. So I don't want to wrestle like 12 footers. But I want it to be smaller than me, but like the little two-foot alligators, I feel like they just like wiggle and squirm everywhere. So I was like, eh, landed on about four feet. I'd wrestle like a four-foot alligator. And uh, we were talking about that, and we pulled up this video of this Florida man. It's always a Florida man, isn't it? This Florida man is walking this little dog. I don't know if you guys have seen this video or not. It hit the news and went viral and stuff. But this alligator just shoots out of this pond and eats his dog. Like, he's like, just chomps down on the dog, pulls the dog back into the pond, and the guy's smoking a cigar, naturally, because that's what you do. And the dude jumps into the pond, wrestles the alligator, brings the alligator back on the pond, pries the jaws open on the alligator, releases the puppy, and never drops the cigar out of his mouth. This is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And the devotion of that guy, like they interview him, they're like, what made you just like spring into action like that? He's just like, I just reacted. I did the only thing I knew to do. And he's like an elderly gentleman too. He's like, naturally, I'm going to fight the alligator. And this is what you would expect from the disciples, right? That kind of like, like we're going we're gonna to fight to the death. Well, that's not what you get, except for Peter. <laughs> Peter literally uh, takes out his sword and cuts a guy's ear off later in this chapter. Y'all come back to church because we're going to get to that later in this chapter. But Peter's like the guy in Florida smoking a cigar, walking his dog. That's kind of Peter's, it, when I imagine Peter, that's what I see. Um, I'm going to jump in and fight an alligator. But, but it doesn't lead itself to be true. And we fool ourselves, don't we? We think we can withstand all of these things. We think we're strong enough. But then when, when it actually comes, quite the opposite happens. In verse 30, Jesus answers him. Now, I don't know Jesus' tone for sure. I can't, I can't see his tone when I, when I look at the words on, on the pages of my Bible. But I, I feel like it's not argumentative. I feel like it's more of a tone of compassion, a little bit of sadness, almost like a, oh, Peter. Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. That, that on the very night, hours before he ends up denying him, Peter's saying, I'll fight an alligator for you, Jesus. I'll, I'll die with you. He even says in verse 31, it says, he said emphatically, I, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then they all say the same. They all echo in. Yeah, we're with Peter. We will die with you if we need to. And Jesus is saying with sadness that even some of the boldest of disciples, the dog walking, cigar smoking disciples that ain't afraid of nothing, are ultimately failures. This eliminates any hint in the church of someone who's got it all together. You guard yourself, church. And when you encounter people in this church or in other churches that posture themselves like they've got it all together, they don't. We're all broken. We're all failures. And as much as we want to emphatically, like verse 31 says, emphatically deny that fact, the fact still remains that we're broken sinners. But we are broken sinners who have given our hearts to Jesus. And that makes it all okay. You see, this is the saving grace of the disciples. Not in their actions, but in their words. I love that they're willing to argue with Jesus, right? It's like they had seen that he knows everything, and they're like, Jesus says, you're going to deny me. And they're like, no, we think you're wrong on this one. 
What that shows us is that their hearts, their actions were going to be far from being in the right place, but their hearts were in the right place right here on this night. The Greek word used to describe them is parasos. Emphatically in the English Standard Version, it, it literally translates to super abundantly. They super abundantly argued with Jesus, no, we will not deny you. But their actions proved that they would deny him. The good news is this, is that Jesus resets them to where their hearts were when they initially gave their hearts to him. Because there are, there are moments where we're going to fool ourselves, we're going to wander off the path, and we're going to convince ourselves that we're fine. We haven't read our Bible in months, but we're fine. We haven't prayed in God knows how long, but we're fine. This is fine. I'm still a Christian. Everything's okay. pastor told me about eternal security. I can't lose my salvation. This is fine. But if you're not returning to Jesus, if you're not meeting up with Jesus again at Galilee, at some point, when's it not fine anymore? You see, we will fail, but our failures will not be final. But some of y'all's failures might be feeling pretty final right now. And if you're just continually walking in unrepentant sin and not following after Christ, then, then maybe it's time for you to think about, maybe did I actually give my heart to Jesus in the first place? Because Judas hadn't. These 11 had. And Jesus meets up with these 11 and not with Judas. In Zechariah 12.10, he prophesied the look on whom they pierce. In Zechariah 13.7, it says that sheep will flee when the shepherd is killed. But we find hope in Zechariah 13.1. And I, I love, as I, as I was reading this passage and studying it this week, just what kept coming to my mind was, Come Thou Fountain, the lyrics of that. And then I read the context of the full passage that Jesus is quoting from, and there it is in Zechariah 13, verse 1. There's a fountain there. Amen. Hallelujah. Let me speak a little Hebrew. On that day there shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. There's a fountain coming that's going to cleanse you. The fountain is the fountain of the blood of the Messiah that will pour out from Golgotha's hill. Come now, fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Hallel. Hymns. You see, the disciples took communion with Christ. They sang a hymn with Christ. And then they fled from his presence, but to be quickly, just a few days later, reunited with him. And that is the beautiful truth of what they observed at the Lord's table. Is that... Though they would falter and mess up and do everything they could to screw up the mission, that ultimately it was not in their hands, it was in his. It rested in his death on the cross and his resurrection. And so as you come to take communion today, church, I want you to be reminded of that fountain that's, that's prophesied in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New, carried out on Calvary's cross, that the fountain that pours out blood is for the payment for your sins. And that you are like a sheep, you are destined for slaughter, but he has predestined you for eternal life instead. That's the glorious good news of the gospel. And if you've never received that, I want you to take a moment to just pray today. Ask Jesus to forgive you today. We'd love to talk to you about that. But those of you who've been saved, who've, who've become Christians, I want you to remind yourselves of that today. Repent of sin today and come and take communion today in celebration of the fact that Jesus did all of this for you. Remain seated, but if you will, read this confession with me, church. Lord God, we have denied you with our lips. 
We have denied you with our hands. We have run from your statutes. We have broken your law. Forgive us for our disobedience, for our idolatry, for our failure in faithfulness. Yet in your unfailing love, you are quick to forgive and you are quick to show grace, to lavish us with mercy, for we are your people and you are our God. Amen. Church, bow your heads. Take a moment to pray. Repent of any sin. Maybe this is a moment if you've Maybe you've been faking it. Maybe you haven't been faking it. Maybe this is a moment today where you can become a Christian for the first time. You do business with God right now in your own way, in your own heart. You talk to him. And whenever you are ready, you are invited to his table, to a relationship with him. Come and eat this bread that represents his body. You'll dip it in this juice that represents his blood to remind you of the high price that was paid for your salvation. So take a moment to pray. And when you're ready, you can come and partake in communion. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.